0: So where are we? The storm has calmed from last week. The disciples, I'm sure, are in shock. You can imagine them, can't you? They're probably snatching a look at Jesus out the corner of their eyes every once in a while. Who is this man that even the winds and the waves obey him? Who is this man their, their hearts would be racing, their chests pounding? They're probably exhausted on the floor of this damp. Boat now stinking of seawater, glancing at Jesus at the corner of her eye. Who is this man? As they recover some of their composure. They begin to see the shore in the distance. The sun is setting. They glide now across the still water until the boat judders as it begins to sort of slide up the gravel bank. A couple of the disciples would, would jump out with a splash they'd pull the boat further ashore, moving like clockwork. After all, they the fishermen, many of them, they've done this a thousand times. They're over in this region, as Mike read, called the uh, Gerdanarines, part of what was known as the Decapolis, 10 small towns in Gentile, that is non-Jewish land. It's the first time in Jesus' ministry he's left Jewish land. But they can't help but notice there's something different here. There's a a strange feeling in the air. You can imagine them looking at each other. They, They look around where they've landed. It is quiet. Eerily quiet. No one is here. Makes a change from the crowds that have normally been following Jesus. Remember, Jesus got in the boat to leave for crowds. You'd think the silence would be pleasant. But it just doesn't quite feel right. The disciples know this place. This used to be a really popular route, especially if people wanting to access the lake. They ask themselves, what's happened here? Why is it so quiet? Why does it feel so eerie? Take a few steps further. They use what's left of a sort of now dwindling light. Evening has come. And the only... Noise they can hear is their hearts beating and their feet scraping on the shingle. As they move forward, large shadowy shapes begin to loom in front of them. They've seen these things before, but never has it felt so sinister. Cold, dark tombs. Suddenly two creatures slink from the shadows from among the graves and... They're coming towards the group, and as they get closer and closer, there's an uncomfortable feeling in the air. None of the disciples could describe it. They're close enough now that they can see at these faces and their bodies. Two men naked, unkempt, their bodies covered in rips where they have shredded them with stones. Disciples look at the faces of the men. And they realise what this feeling is they couldn't put their finger on. It's evil. They are face to face with evil. These aren't ordinary human men. Disciples then look to Jesus. Their pulses through the roof, eyes wide open. But just like the storm, Jesus shows no sign of fear. Fear. He's not surprised at all. It's almost as if this is the very reason they'd crossed the lake. It was all for this moment. It's obvious now why this place is so quiet. No one wants to come near them. This place near the tombs, this place of death, not whilst these two men are here. These men are demon-possessed, under the control of demonic power, powerful evil forces, enemies of Jesus, enemies of God. And for some time, we know they've been terrorising the road, terrorising this area and anyone who would come by. Beating, killing, fighting. The villagers all knew this was an absolute no-go area. And now these dangerous, evil, powerful men are walking towards the group. But the two demonised men don't even look at the disciples. They're concerned by nothing and no one apart from Jesus. Make a beeline for Jesus, look straight at him and shriek. What do you want with us, son of God? It's a squeal that the word Matthew uses is like the word he describes for a croak of a raven, a horrible, shrill sound. What do you want with us, son of God? They know who he is. They know he's the son of God. They know instantly who he is. And they know his power and his goodness. And they know he's going to defeat evil one day. All evil, evil like them. And we see it, don't they? They beg him. They plead him. Jesus, we know who you are. Don't destroy us. Not yet. Send us away, but don't destroy us. They're frantic. They're screaming. Jesus, let us go. We'll leave these men alone. We beg you. Nearby, there's some pigs. Let us go to the pigs. We beg you, send us into the pigs. Jesus calmly stands there and says one word, go. And the demons came out of the men. Into the pigs. And the pigs entered such a frenzy. We hear in Mark's Gospel over 2,000 of them. Such a frenzy. They stampede down the bank and into the lake to drown. And the demons have gone. They've not just transferred from the men to the pigs. They're totally destroyed. And if we were there, I'm sure we could sense a sort of relief. The air fresher the night somehow seems brighter, the tombs less imposing. And now two ordinary men in their right minds again, men who've been set free from the bonds of evil, men whom Jesus has saved from darkness, who've been transformed stand before the disciples. Jesus saved them from the tombs. He saved them from darkness evil, they're free, they can live, they can be with people again. They won't be rejected. Jesus has saved them. That's the first part of our story. We're going to zoom in today on three, well, four actually, characters or groups of people. We're going to look at Jesus. We're then going to look uh, at the villagers before we look at the men and finally the pigs. Firstly, let's look at Jesus. Jesus, the unstoppable. Son of God. Remember what Matthew's doing here. If it's the first time you've been with us in this series, what Matthew's doing here in Matthew 8 and 9 is he's uh, compiled these stories. He's compiled these uh, stories to demonstrate the authority of Jesus. We have the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 to 7. We've seen his authoritative teaching of Jesus. And now we get shown his authority. We've seen his authority over sickness and disease. Uh, We've seen it in how he challenges the scribes and the teachers. We've seen it just last week in how he calmed the storm with a word. His authority over nature. And now we see here again his authority over evil. And again and again, uh, we're seeing what C.S. Lewis once said, that Jesus is either mad, bad or God. You can't ever just say he was a good moral teacher. You can't read the story and just think he's, he's somebody... Relatively calm and nice, who said nice things and moral teaching, we see instead a man with total authority, and here over the forces of evil. Now, um, I don't know where you've been, but in our culture, demon possession is not massively common. Um, definitely exists in the world today. But it's not massively common in our culture, but. Uh, as we've been trying to do in this series, let's have the discipline of putting ourselves there. It's what I tried to do just then by taking us into the story of, of looking and listening to Jesus, of seeing what he's done and reminding ourselves that this actually happened. Because whilst demon possession is not massively common, the devil very much is real and active. Behind all disorder and violence in the world is the devil. Uh, And as we see here, with one word, Jesus is able to cast it out. Able to powerfully overthrow the seemingly really significant power which was had over these men. That's an encouragement. There's nothing too great in our lives. Nothing too great in our backgrounds and the lives of our friends that Jesus cannot overthrow. And the demons tell us why. The, The men in the boat were wondering who this man was. It's another eight chapters in Matthew's gospel until they declare who Jesus is. But disciples still don't really know but the demons know. What do you want with us, son of God? Have you come to torture us before the appointed time? The son of God, the demons shuddered because they recognised God and they recognised the consequence of rejecting him. You see, it's not a small thing to say Jesus is the Son of God. It maybe flippantly, kind of flips up our tongue sometimes. You've been in church a while. Uh, but it's not just something we need to intellectually agree with. We've seen it through Matthew earlier. It's a matter of allegiance. If I acknowledge Jesus is the Son of God in my head, that information needs to travel to my heart, then to my hands and to my feet. I, I'm compelled to love him and serve him and walk in his ways. We're then willing to count the cost and following him, as we saw earlier, Matthew. He is the son of God. And particularly what we see here, what that means, is that means he is the appointed judge who will come to judge at the appointed time. Do you notice that from the demons, what they said to him? Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? They knew Jesus was the judge. This is the fullest meaning of the term Son of God. Jesus then judges them. He judges them by sending them to the pigs to drown. With one word, they're judged. I and mean, it's blunt, but we need to be frank. We need to be clear here in Matthew's gospel. Jesus will one day judge. All of us in this room will stand before Jesus for right and true judge, the Son of God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. I don't know about you, but that's quite a scary thought. We we see a glimpse, we see a, a sort of foreshadowing of that judgment here of the demons with a word they are judged. It's a sobering thought here if you've not put your trust in Christ. But if you have, take heart and worship here because we see here Jesus as the ruler of the creation. Jesus is the judge over evil. But we also see Jesus as the God who saves people. We've seen that throughout our time in Matthew 8, haven't we? Our Lord saves the leper. He saves the woman. He saves the slave and many other from their illnesses. He's just saved the disciples from drowning. He saves the demon-possessed men from their demons. Jesus again and again is showing himself to be the Savior. And where do we primarily see this? We're looking forward to this in Matthew. We see this on the cross, which amazingly, he chooses to stay on for our sake. Think about this in light of Matthew 8 as I was thinking about it and praying on it. Think of the power and the authority we've seen in Matthew 8. With a word, he can calm a storm. With a word, he can cast out his demons. With a word, he can heal these men. And yet, when it comes to the cross, Jesus healed people with a word, calmed a storm with a word, cast out a demon with a word, chooses not to exercise that power on the cross. He chooses to die. He chooses to save us from our sin, to take the punishment we deserve. For our rejection. This is the beauty of Christ. 1 John 3 says. The reason the son of God appeared. Was to destroy the works of the devil. With a glimpse of it here. We see it fully on the cross. It's the ultimate exorcism. The chaos of creation. The powers of evil. The sins of you and me. Are rebuked and exercised on the cross. Christ is. Is victorious over evil. The evils of sickness, the evils of sin, the evils of death, the evil of hell. So the challenge is as we look at Jesus here: if you're not in Christ, turn to him. And if you are in Christ, worship him. Take him seriously. Take Satan seriously. Yes. Take evil seriously. He longs to distract us. He longs to destroy us and to turn us away. We read a few years ago the Screwtape Letters. It's brilliant. And sobering. Take Jesus more seriously. He is due our worship. He's due our allegiance. We look around, we read the news. And it feels it gets worse and worse, but you chat to people who are older than you and they say it felt worse and worse 20, 30 years ago. We know our world is broken. We know it is full of evil. But we see a picture here we know actually has ultimately happened. Christ has ultimately secured the victory. And for that, we can have great hope. That's Jesus. Let's look more briefly at the next three groups. Let's look at the villagers who tell Jesus to leave. You see in the background, watching the whole encounter with the pig owners, we we don't know why they'd come so close to a place where we're told most people would have avoided. But but having seen everything that happens, they run to the nearest village and tell everyone what they've just seen. I mean, what else would you do? You can imagine them running down the street going, come quick, come quick. You've got to come see this. There was this man on a boat uh, and other men. uh, And then the men with the demons and the pigs and the pigs ran into the water. And the demon man shrieked like a raven. And this guy was silent. You can just imagine them going, this has happened. And you can imagine the pigs, the pigs can't swim. The pigs are dead. You've got to come. And so we see here, the whole town comes out to see Jesus. And Jesus is there with his disciples, and they can the villagers then come and see the demon-possessed men, or the once demon-possessed men. Because they're looking at these men, and you can see them thinking, hang on a sec, I recognize these two. But in some way they're different. These men were violent, they were terrifying, they used to hurt anyone who came near them. No one is able to use that road for ages. It used to be a popular route to the lake and now it's not the town is now safe seemingly jesus transformed their lives and the villagers are looking at them it's the most incredible thing you can imagine they will have seen they're probably seeing the sort of ripples of the water down by the lake where the pigs have just drowned what do they say to jesus they begged him to leave they begged him I think this is the scariest part of the story. It would have been terrifying, wouldn't it, with the the eerie tombs and the demon-possessed men. But I think this is the scariest part as we look at the townsfolk. They're basically first-hand witnesses to see who Jesus was. They saw his power. They saw how he saves people. They literally would have seen the demon-possessed men before and after. They've seen how he brings peace. And yet they beg him to leave. Who else in this story begged Jesus? The demons. They begged Jesus. The demons, though, seemingly have more respect for Jesus than these people did. The people are saying, Jesus, get out of here. Jesus, leave. We don't want you. At least the demons said, we'll be the ones leaving. Jesus, you can stay. But not the townsfolk. Jesus, get out of here. And we start next week. We're going to be in chapter nine with Pete. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. He leaves. The townsfolk told him to leave, and Jesus did. They didn't want Jesus. I think this is crucial for us to get. It's not just enough to see that Jesus is king. The demons saw that Jesus is the king, they saw that he is the Lord. The townsfolk saw that he is the Lord, and yet they didn't want him. I'm sure they were scared. I'm pretty sure they're absolutely fuming about the loss of what we see in Mark was 2,000 pigs. It's a lot of money in this kind of society. But I think we see, and we see it elsewhere in Mark, the main source of their anger was because they didn't want to acknowledge the fact that the change Jesus brought about in these men's lives was a change they needed in theirs. Costly following Jesus. We've seen that again in in Matthew 8. So here's a challenge, and maybe it's a challenge especially to those people who maybe come to town church most weeks who are looking at Jesus but yet haven't fully put their trust in him, who've been keeping at arm's length maybe, saying maybe later, can I say, please don't be like these villagers. You've seen Jesus. Now trust him and follow him. You've been coming and hearing all these amazing things Jesus has done, how he changes lives. Maybe hopefully you've seen his changing lives as he looked at the lives of people at town church. The whole book is written to show us that Jesus is king, the Messiah, the promised one. The whole reason we do church each week is to show and remind us of this. What will you do in response to him if you've been holding my arm's length? Don't be like the townsfolk. There's a warning for us as we look at the townsfolk. They aren't interested. They're actively are rejecting him. But let's zoom in and see the men and the pigs. Oh, this is Wonderful. In, in every story I think we ever read, we, we subconsciously look to locate ourselves in them. We like to think, who are we in this story? Um, which is quite a fascinating exercise if you want to do it. You can find out quite a lot about people. Think of Lord of the Rings. Uh, who are you in Lord of the Rings? It's quite interesting. If somebody goes, I'm a Gandalf. You go, well, that's bold. Um, or I'm a bit like Frodo. Okay, uh, that's more likely. Um, but we, in every story we read in the Bible as well, we locate ourselves. We put ourselves there. We often put ourselves Uh, in a slightly favourable position. Uh, We've got three options here of where we place ourselves. Uh, Are we the disciples just watching on? I think that's probably where we most naturally want to see ourselves, just the disciples watching on. Uh, That's fine. Um, As I've said, there's a challenge to make sure we're not the villagers. Maybe you are the villagers. In that case, hear my warning. Hear Christ's warning here. But I want to say... And it'll hurt, as I say, and you can know where I'm getting on this. I want to say we should probably identify with most of the demon-possessed men. We've probably read this story and gone, "Thank God I'm not remotely like these men. I've got my clothes on. It's good. I'm able to reason. No one has, has tied me up or needs to have me tied up. I'm not demon-possessed. I'm not being kicked out of home and living in a tomb." The Bible does not say that the human condition of men and women is that we are by nature demon-possessed. But the Bible does say, and that's why these men are an illustration in part of the human condition. The Bible does say that men and women, by their very nature, are ruled by dark and sinister forces. Paul in Ephesians 2 describes to us the life of every man and woman outside of Christ. It says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. This is the description of being outside of Christ as opposed to being inside of Christ. Let let me ground this for us here. Uh, If what we think is a normal Christian experience is not grounded by the Bible, then we may describe a sort of story of coming to follow Jesus like this. We'd say, well, I'm a fairly good person. I've been that most of my life, um, but I just needed to add some religion to my life. Um, So I came to church. I I like church. I like the people there. I like the food before and after. Um, The children's work was super. The the preaching, so-so, a bit heavy sometimes. Uh, But basically, there came to be a time when I decided it was time to get a bit more serious about religion. That that could be a description if we don't ground it in the Bible. But when we look at Ephesians and we look at this picture here, we see that outside of Christ, you are a dead man or a dead woman. You're you're an alive, dead person outside of Christ. You're you're like the walking dead outside of Jesus. And you may not be held in the the grip of demonic forces like these, but by the very nature of... You're in control of that which is marked as sinister, as completely counter to the life and freedom and the joys provided by Jesus, the Bible tells us. So these men, these demon-possessed men, are not as far as removed from us as we might like to think. It's not a pretty picture, is it? You see, the message of the gospel is not, why don't you just turn over a new leaf? Why don't you you get a little purpose in your life? Why don't you get a little religion in your life? The message of the gospel is you're a dead man and you can't make yourself alive. You're a blind woman and you can't make yourself see. We've seen that again and again in Matthew 8. When you look at it, the leper couldn't heal himself. The disciples could not calm the storm. And this should alarm us. It should shake some of you, this message, because some of you may sit here Sunday after Sunday and think, when I'm ready, I'll get things sorted. In my time, in my way, when I'm ready, I'll follow Jesus. But we don't know what this day will bring. We don't even know if we'll make it to bed this evening, which is why the Bible says, if you hear the voice of God, if you feel the prompting of His Spirit, then respond right here and now. Now, I say again, this this man's condition, these men's condition may be vastly different from ours in the sense of demon possession. But not so dramatically different from ours in terms of our nature outside of Christ. It's not very nice to hear. I don't find it particularly a nice thing to say. To look at my friends, look at my neighbours when I chat to them. My, my friends who I long to speak about, Gee, say, hey, I don't know where you are, but if you're not in Christ, you're a dead man. That's not the way to gain friends and influence people. So why would you ever say it? Well, I say it because I feel I have to say it because it's true. So we see these men before they met Jesus. And we need to identify with them. But then they met Jesus. And we come to the pigs. Now, these men were Gentiles. That I means non-Jews not originally part of the sort of nation of God. The the majority of us are as well. And in Jewish thinking, pigs and Gentiles had a lot in common. Pigs under the law of Moses were off limits to Israel. Both Leviticus and Deuteronomy command they were not to be eaten or touched. We looked at it when we looked at Leviticus. Various reasons suggested for this, but the reason the law gives is simply that they had divided hooves. They did not chew the cud. It seems arbitrary. But God simply declares some animals are clean and some aren't. And the most detestable of the unclean animals, the ones Isaiah mentions to show us just how depraved people can be, are pigs. As Gentiles, by nature unclean and separated from Israel ourselves, we can feel some sympathy for them. So when we see Gentiles and pigs have something common in Jewish thought... We can't help but see something of ourselves in these demon-possessed men. They were unclean, impure, outsiders, surrounded by pigs, unable to access the presence or the people of God. So were we. They lived among the tombs with death all around them, naked and ashamed, without hope and without God. Before Christ, so were we. They were oppressed by the powers of darkness, crying out in pain, harming themselves beyond the reach of any human power. And so were we. And then they met Jesus. You see, Jesus not only sets them free from the tyranny of the devil. He also humiliates the enemy. He drives them and all the uncleanness and all the impurities they represent down a cliff and into the sea. We then see, if you read the same story in Mark's gospel, how the men are restored to their right mind, clothed in new garments, visibly transformed by meeting Jesus, how they begin to follow him and long to speak of him. These pigs died, but in their death, in the death of these impure beasts, these men found new life and were thoroughly delivered from all that was pressing them, all the uncleanness that tainted them. The picture of the dead pigs is a picture of the permanence of Christ's work of ridding us of sin. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. We were by nature objects of wrath. We were by nature like these demon-possessed men. And then if you put your trust in Jesus, this is promised to us. There's a moment when you can say, I met Jesus and I was transformed. My sin, like the pigs, went to die. It's a wonderful book. I can't remember its title actually now. Uh, Ask Me Later, uh, by a pastor called Andrew Wilson. He talks about what he calls the pig paradox. He says, on one hand, no animal is smellier, dirtier or uglier than a pig. The unfortunate combination of snouts and snorts makes them deeply unattractive. They roll around in mud. They eat their own feces. They've become the byword for mess. Your room's a pigsty. The byword for infidelity. He's such a pig. Disaster, a pig's ear. Overeating, greedy as a pig. When they gather together, you can smell them from miles away. Over a billion people avoid touching or eating them on religious grounds, considering them filthy and untouchable, and you can see why. But this is the pig paradox. They taste sensational and smell sensational when cooked. Apologies to any vegans. How can something that smells so bad when it is alive smell so great when it isn't? How can death transform something from filthy and untouchable to aromatic and delightful? Here in this story, as we remember we're like the demon-possessed men and that we're like the pigs, we can declare and praise God that in Christ, pigs become bacon. Smelly pigs become bacon. Bacon. Remember this. In Christ, we become like delicious bacon from unclean to clean, from impure to pure, from rejected and living on the outskirts of society to welcomed. This is what happens in the gospel. It's a picture of the gospel. And maybe you need to hear this wonderful truth today. Maybe you're feeling low, you're feeling flat, you're feeling guilty, pressed down, downtrodden. Here, feel loved and delighted in. And clean if you're in Christ. Your sin has gone bounding down the hill to die in the waters. We can praise God for the work of his son. The son of God who is totally powerful over evil. Totally powerful as we'll see next week over sin. The authoritative king who takes the unclean, the evil and makes it clean and pure. The demon possessed men could not save themselves and we can't save ourselves. But Jesus made it possible he's turned stinking, filthy, dirty pigs into delicious bacon. And all we need to do for that to be the case is to trust him, ask his forgiveness, and we'll be known as his delighted children. Praise God.